Okay, so we've been, uh, we have begun our focus on the book of Nehemiah since last week. And I mentioned that this, uh, our, our time through the book of Nehemiah is going to be uh, story-based. It's going to be in narratives. Um, we're going to go through the story and try, um, yeah, try, try our best to just uh, relate with them and uh, see what, what emerges from that uh, reflection. So we're going to be a lot of stories. Today our focus is on two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, and I would really uh, recommend that you have that text open because it's a lot of verses, as you will see if you scan through. Uh, we'll not be reading all of them, but um, we do want to do justice to the, the, the narrative, the story that is told in these two chapters. Just a quick recap. Um, we are talking about the Persian Empire. Um, again, there's a lot of, going to be a lot of details, but I uh, invite you to hang on and uh, try and try and uh, get the drift of the story. Persian Empire, as you can see from the green mark in the in the map, it stretched. Uh, it was at its height when Nehemiah uh, was in in Susa. Um, huge empire, to say the least. It stretched from Greece all the way to the borders of India, as you can see from the map here. Uh, massively huge. Uh, they uh, they overthrew uh, previous empires such as the Babylonian empires, Assyrian empires and they established themselves in this massive, uh, um, in, in this massive geographical uh, place. In this context, the Jews were scattered. If you remember, the Jews were uh, taken as uh, captives by the Babylonians. They were scattered across the face of the, the previously Babylon empire. And when the Persian empire <coughs> overtook the Babylonian, uh, the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple, their city. And that was under Cyrus, the, the Persian Empire. So it is, this, it is in that context that the story of Nehemiah opens up. Nehemiah is uh, a cupbearer in the, the court of the Persian, the, the Persian Empire. And he hears this news that the walls of, Jer uh, walls of Jerusalem is all broken down. So his heart is broken, he's completely shattered, and he decides he has to do something about it. So the story opens in Susa, the, 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 the main center of the Persian Empire. And again, I just want you to remember this context of the vast empire and Susa being the capital of that vast empire. So this is a huge deal. This is a very important city. This, of course, is a recreation, but it just shows how immensely uh, grand and uh, uh, huge the city was. And this was in, in 400 BC. So uh, this is more than 2,000 years back. So this is the winter capital of the, the Persian Empire, the main center. It's re a renowned city. It's, uh, it's the place to be back in the days. And it's to be found in present-day Iran today. Uh, it's not, apparently it's not inhabited at this moment, but uh, up till the 1700s, it was very much a, a, a inhabited city. And uh, I just went back and dug a little bit about the history of this city. Uh, Apparently, this city existed in 4000 BC. Just, that's, I, I, that's just immense. Like 4000 BC, the Susa was already in existence. It was one of the uh, world's, it is one of the world's oldest known settlements. Uh, it's a city of trade 4000 years before birth of Christ. Um, I mean, we used to walk into New College and think this is pretty historical. Uh, but this uh, totally, um, you know, like upsets all of that. 4,000 years before Christ. And this was a city of trade, uh, ceramics, pottery, a lot of things going on, a uh, lot of um, production going on. 
And it was well known for uh, copper. And today we're like, copper, what, what's the deal with copper? To have copper, to have metal is almost like to have sophisticated weaponry, like to have almost like a nuclear weapon in today's contemporary. So in other words, they were just going around. Um, the, the city was uh, the center of this strong military uh, uh, power and presence. So this was the city. And this, is, this city, Susa, for 4,000 years, it existed. Uh, it survived the Assyrians, the Elamites, the uh, Neo-Assyrians, the Babylonians. Um, in other words, it's, it's gone through a lot and it has stood the test of time. And it is the, a historical place reputed as a place of power, authority. Uh, in fact, the world's first recorded war is, uh, happened uh, in a war that's associated with Susa. So it goes, my point being, it's a huge deal, it's a very important city. And this is where we find the story happening today. And so let's read uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 2. It says, and it came about in the month Nisan, month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I picked up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not ill? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Um, there's some graphics here, uh, this, so you, you can understand the, the splendor of this. Um, you might not be able to see much, but uh, these guys here, yeah, the, the, that's, that's there are two persons there, just for context of how high these columns are. These are, of course, again, recreation, but these are some of the palaces uh, found in one of the Persian empire, the cities of the Persian Empire. Um, so, and these are, of course, colored um, um, woodwork, uh, stonework, masonry that we find throughout the temples, like, just to, goes to show how grand it was. Now, we come to the cupbearer. Uh, some people think that this picture is, uh, shows a picture of Nehemiah, which is really interesting. Here, the, the guy sitting is the Xerxes. The guy behind the Xerxes is Arta Xerxes, the, the king when Nehemiah was uh, in, uh, at, at working. And the guy behind, the, the third guy behind the king is supposedly Nehemiah, which goes to show that the cup, role of the cupbearer is a really important work, important role in, in the empire. Um, you have, I mean, if you're going to depict the, the scene of power, and if this guy shows up among the kings, uh, that just shows what important place, what honor he has in, in the courts. So this is the scene that we have. Uh, Nehemiah is the cupbearer, and as we read in chapter 2, he's, he's sat, he's depressed. And the king is like, what's going on? Why are you sad? It's very I find it very interesting that it says uh, he was never sad. Uh, he, he had not been sad before. But this time he is like really sad. And of course, this connects with the previous story in which he hears the news from his brother Hanani, who said that Jerusalem is completely um, broken down. The walls of Jerusalem is broken and uh, it's in a mess. And that completely... Um, um, uh, shattered him, as, as I mentioned last week. And by the way, that Hanani's, his conversation with Hanani was in the winter, and this is in spring when he talks to, uh, to the king. So many months have elapsed, and we can imagine that through these months, the news did not wane away. He, he was still depressed, and it was taking a toll on him. He was, he was uh, probably fasting and praying the continual thoughts of that, that sad news that he's heard 
weighs on him and he's visibly like it's affecting him uh, his face and his demeanor and he comes to the king and the king's like why are you sad uh, his appearance was in tatters and remember i mentioned that the cupbearer has to be handsome and good looking uh, that might have something to do with this like at this point nehemiah was, looks looks like he's gone through <laughs> a lot and he's looking terrible uh, and he was afraid um, the king asked why are you sad and he was afraid why why do you think he's afraid uh, again, very interesting. There could be many reasons for this uh, fear, but I think it's also because the, the, what he's going to request is such a sensitive and volatile thing, like politically, and it could get him killed. And that has happened in the Persian Empire, uh, and we'll read about that later. So he's scared. So let's keep reading verse 3, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 3. And I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the site of my father's tomb, is desolate and the gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor before you, I request that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. Just quickly, one side note that we notice here, the queen is sitting with the king, which indicates that this was most likely a private banquet, not a public, where uh, Nehemiah as a cupbearer is supposed to be, uh, as an official. Again, which shows how close Nehemiah was with the king and the queen. Uh, shows how, how, how uh, trustworthy he was and how, uh, what an important role he plays uh, in the courts. But the story gets more complicated because he has a very important request. He wants the king to send him to Judah to rebuild the, 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 um, the walls. And Nehemiah doesn't end there. His request doesn't end there. I really appreciate Nehemiah and how insistent he is. The first request of going to Jerusalem was granted. The king said, I'll grant it to you. But he decides to push more. And I think this is where he, his tactfulness uh, like a chess game, like he's really tactful, he's very calculated, he assesses the risks and he decides to go for more, to push for more. So he, he goes on and says, uh, verse, um, I think it's verse 6, yes, verse 7, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be sent, be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, so that they will allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asap, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which is by the temple, by, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on him. So he goes beyond and he asks not only for permission, but he also asks for, let's say, a grant to get the wood, the timber for, for building the, the walls, building the temple, for building the house that he's going to live in. And I have to say this is really impressive. Like, uh, from my experience of applying for grants, uh, he, he's really up there. Like, he knows how to put his uh, deal and he's a really good negotiator. Uh, and he, 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 very impressive that he gets away, not just with going away for months likely, but also getting the money and the resources to, to do that work. So in verse 9, he says, the, the Bible, Nehemiah says, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the Euphrates River and gave them the king's letters. 
Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sanbalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So Nehemiah is sent. He goes to Jerusalem. And now the reason why Nehemiah asked for guards and imperial letter becomes clear. It was because Jerusalem was ruled by outsiders during that time. When Babylon took over Jerusalem, they appointed foreign, uh, foreign officials to, to rule over the people of Jerusalem. And they, were, they, were not, they didn't care about the, the, uh, the life of the, uh, the locals there. They were oppressive. And I think I mentioned this last week as well. There were many who were benefiting from the, the mess, the political mess that was happening. There were people who got rich by taking advantage of the poor. There were people who were living, living wealthy and privileged lives, oppressing people. They're profiting off the poor and the helpless. And they were happy with the way things are. Uh, they were not happy that a bunch of uh, Jews leaders are returning to rebuild the wall and most likely upset their lives, their privileged and comfortable lives. So they were annoyed. And we will meet, encounter these guys, Sanbalat and uh, Tobiah, again and again throughout the chapters. But they keep posing problems for Nehemiah and the workers. But they couldn't do anything. Why? Because Nehemiah had the letter from the king. The, letter, the, the king had authorized them and given them the seal of not just approval, but the seal of support to their project. So they couldn't do anything. And they, they could go ahead and do their work. Let's keep reading the, the verses. Let's see what I have here. Yeah. Um, verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. And I got up in the night and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there were no animals with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon spring and on to the dung gate and i was inspecting the walls of jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire then i passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool and there was no place for a mount to pass so i was going up at night by the ravine and inspecting the wall then i entered the valley gate again and returned however the officials did not know what i had gone where i had gone and what i was doing nor had i as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, all the rest who were doing the work. So Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem and interesting, like he conducts this inspection secretly. He doesn't tell anybody. Uh, he doesn't let anybody know. He conducts the inspection secretly at night. He took only a few of his men and only one animal, presumably to, to not make noise. And he goes up at night. He goes out at night. It, this just shows how volatile and how sensitive things were politically at that time. Uh, any wrong hand that he plays, any uh, word that goes out from there, any secrets, secrets being spilled, this could cause huge uproar and it could just uh, fall flat. Um, again, as, as such things have happened in, if you read the history of the Persian Empire. But now the um, Nehemiah is in Jerusalem, he's conducted this secret uh, inspection and now he's ready to turn the focus to another group of people. And this is where the stage turns to Jerusalem. Uh, you'll have trouble finding Jerusalem in this map because Jerusalem is literally in the margins of the empire. At the fringe, it's a small, almost insignificant town compared to 
the grandeur of Susa. Uh, Jerusalem, right there in the, in, the, in the bottom there near Egypt, um, that's the fringe of the Persian Empire where uh, the center has no control. Uh, whoever is in power is in power. Uh, and of course, that is the fact in every other situation. They're the fringe of the Egyptian Empire, the, the fringe of the Babylonian Empire, the fringe of the Assyrian Empire, the Roman Empire. The, the story of the Jews, the story of Jesus coming is literally a story of uh, God appearing in the fringes. Uh, but that's, of course, another story uh, for another time. So we turn our focus to Jerusalem. And of course, this is a modern excavation thing, but it shows the, the extent of damage that Jerusalem was. Compare this image to that of Susa that we saw earlier uh, and think about the emotions that must have been going through somebody like Nehemiah, who is living in glory in Susa. He comes home and he finds this broken down um, uh, walls that he calls his spiritual heritage. So he turns the focus now to the people in Jerusalem. And in verse 17, uh, it goes on, the story goes on to say, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates have been burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And I told them how the hand of my God has been favorable to me and also about the king's word, which he had spoken to me. And they said, let's arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat again, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the, Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will make us successful. Therefore, we are his servants. We, his servants, will arise and build, and you have no part, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. So the story focuses, the turns, story turns to the community, the Jews in Jerusalem. Nehemiah meets with the people and explains his purpose. And when the people heard Nehemiah's appeal, they were stirred up. They were like, Yes, this is what we're waiting for. This is this is exactly what we need, uh, somebody to come or all the, all the factors to, uh, to work together so that we can have this conducive thing and we can start working together. And I feel this is the climax of the story for, at least for today. The way the people came together, the whole community came together, they united and they cooperated uh, the, uh, and worked in, in enthusiasm, in agreement. They had been waiting for this moment. And I think the... Uh, the next chapter, chapter 3, is um, it's a very confusing chapter, to say the least, because there's like names and places and gates. This guy built that gate, and then his brother built that gate. The whole chapter 3 is like that. But I think the point in that chapter is the, the idea of collaboration, of people working together. And there's one lovely uh, phrase that comes out in King James Version and in, uh, in ESV as well, but... I'm trying to locate it, but it, it says, they strengthened their arms for the good work. They strengthened their arms for the good work. And I, I love that notion that they put their hands together and they, they brought what they can. Whatever they're good at, they brought it together and for the good work. Now, I'm not going to go through all these details, but apparently this is the wall. <laughs> um, you can see why there's so much references to the place. Uh, and every, apparently there are 40 sections that are mentioned in chapter 3. And these 40 sections are all of different, different sizes, different proportions. 
which means planning and coordinating between different workers in different sizes to all fit together, that takes a lot of tremendous work. Uh, and this goes to show, of course, how, what a good administrator uh, Nehemiah was, but also how, much un how united the people were in working together in this joint effort. So I think I just want to emphasize uh, uh, from these, uh, from, I was reflecting on chapter three and the number, the, the places, the name of places, the names of persons uh, mentioned there, there, and I was reflecting what, what can we draw from here. I think at least we can draw two things. Firstly, that place is important. Uh, details are important. And, you know, I'm that guy, like, skip the details, tell me the story, tell me the moral of the story, get to the point, skip the details. I don't think God seems to be like that. Like, he, at least Nehemiah is not like that. He, he cares for the details, he care, cares for the efforts that people put in, that people, they are, this person built this part, he, he cares for that specific detail. So place is important. Not just place, names are important. Um, uh, the, the list of people mentioned in chapter 3, um, it, it covers a whole range of people from priests, from Levites, from doorkeepers, from laymen, from groups of workers, and even women and daughters are mentioned. In other words, all classes of the people came together and worked together. And obviously many more are not named. For example, those people who served water, for example, those people who cooked or who baked uh, and who, who served tea, so to say. Those people are names are not mentioned, but they are equally important in this effort. So names are important, and uh, places are important, names are important. God affirms these details. God affirms every person who is uh, contributing in this effort. If, um, if uh, remember there are, uh, in, in the movie, there are credits that come out at the end of the movie. That's where we, we skip, and then we move on to the next movie. If God was watching the movie, he would actually metaphor, okay, but he would actually read each names and acknowledge every contributors in that, in that list. Uh, and, and we see that acknowledgement, we see that credits happening in the chapter 3, where every person is acknowledged for their work. So people came together to work together, to collaborate. They brought their skills, they brought whatever they can do. Uh, they broke down the task and they contributed together whatever they are good at. So Nehemiah and the people, community of God worked together. But there's also another worker in this, in this story uh, that is, might be easy to miss, easy to just uh, overlook, and that is uh, the God of heaven. God is also working in this. From, from straight from verse 1, we notice that Nehemiah placed his confidence and authority in God. He prayed when he heard the, his brother's message about the wall of Jerusalem. He prayed, he fasted and he prayed. He prayed when he talked to the king. And when, when the king favored him, Nehemiah considered that as God's hand, God's moving and uh, allowing this to happen. God was ultimately responsible for what was happening. And it's very interesting to note that Nehemiah was, uh, there were multiple levels of authority and power going on. The Jews were ruled by the, Samar the, uh, the rulers of Samaria, and the rulers of Samaria were controlled by the Persian king. But for Nehemiah, all above all of this, there's God. So when, when he appeals to uh, the, Samar the leaders of Samaria, he uses the letter of the king. But when he talks to the king, he, he, he relies on the authority of God. And it's very interesting like, how he, his perspective is, is like, very sensible. Like, God is ultimately the authority. Um, and I love how when 
Sanballat, the critics, Sanballat and Tobia, mocked the, uh, the Jews, um, Nehemiah could have pulled out his letter and said, look, this is the, the letter of the king who said we have the permission here. He didn't do, he didn't, I'm sure he did that. But what is recorded here is that he appealed to God of heaven. He said, the God of heaven is with us and he will make, it, make us succeed. God's good hand is working with us. So God, in, in, in perspective of Nehemiah, God was a co-worker in this project. He was working with them. His good hand was working with them, just as everybody strengthened their hands in the same way God was working with them. So a brief uh, uh, conclusion and just a brief refre re reflections. Um, it's hard, it's easy to think of these stories and uh, try to draw out moral, and clearly we can. But I think it's important to look at the specificities, like the temple, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, what, what did these places mean for the Jews? Uh, to put it very simply, these places were uh, places to meet God. Uh, the temple provided the opportunity for people, the Jews, to meet with God, to, uh, to practice the religious life, so to say. For example, when Hannah was, um, was sorrowful because she did not have a child, where did she go to? She wanted to pray. Where did she go to? She went to the temple, right? Where do you go to when you seek for forgiveness? You go to the temple. Where, where do you go to when you, ha you have something you want to ask desperately to God? You go to the temple. When you, feel, um, uh, you, when you feel like you need protection for the Jews, where did they go to? They go to the temple. You need peace, where do you go to? You go to the temple. Guidance, go to the temple. You, you need scripture, you go to the temple. The temple is where people meet with God and encounter, uh, relate with God. And they were working together to rebuild this place where they can meet with God, where they can worship pray and relate with God. Now for us, we don't have a temple. We don't have a temple today to build. But the crazy news, of course, in the New Testament is that the temple, the presence of God is not restricted to a place and to a time. God's presence is poured out in the world, right? As we are told in the New Testament, God's presence is not in a place and time, just as Jesus told the Samaritan woman, it's, uh, it's been poured out into the world. And how, you might ask. I think it's poured out in the world through his followers, through his disciples, uh, the spirit that lives in us. We are, as Corinthians says, we are the living temple of the spirit. We are the temples of the living spirit. And this is where every time I think about this, it makes me um, a bit nervous because this is so radical. But what we see in the Bible is that with all our imperfections, right, with all of our flaws and problems, the people of God, the church, is where Jesus chose to be his representation, to be his ambassadors. So through his followers, Jesus says in John, the text that we reflected a few weeks back, the world may come to know him and believe in him. And I don't know, that's, that's like, makes me nervous to say that. And I'm always like, are you sure that's what he says? But I'm, I'm from, from my reading and from what I've read from other scholars, this is truly what the gospel means, that God's presence is poured out into the world through his followers in all of our flaws. So I would say, practically speaking, that means that in our secular works, and I use that very specifically, in our secular works, we can play the role of the temple. We can play the role of protecting the vulnerable. We can play the role of providing the needs of those who are in need. We can play the role of supporting and helping and taking care of those who are in need. 
right? Um, we can play the role of giving guidance and teaching those who are navigating through life. Sometimes we have to work together, just like Nehemiah worked together with the king Artaxerxes and other, other Persian officials. Sometimes we work together with those who don't believe like us, but ultimately we are working together uh, for the glory of God and for his kingdom. In, in that sense, our, our work in the secular becomes our spiritual ministries. However secular they may appear to our eyes, they become our way of witnessing to what God has called us to do in this world. Through our, through our care, through our love, and through our witnessing, uh, not least, uh, through our work for, uh, for peace, for protection, for healing the broken, all these things are ways in which we, uh, we are God's temple in this world. At the same time, there's, I think there's something more specific there as well. There's something unique about being a part of a church, a local church, uh, the body of Christ. Because I think it is where in the church where we can be intentional about growing as Christians, as people of faith. Uh, and so I think uh, building the community of faith is also an important element of uh, participating in working together with God um, in our ministries. Like how might we all work together? So I think the message of Nehemiah and, and this story of working together um, to rebuild, to consolidate the place of worship, it offers us encouragement and challenges to us today. And these, there are uh, four points that I would, uh, I would like to, just by the way, these are the names of the people listed in the uh, chapter three. Uh, you can thank me for not, not reading through the chapter. <laughs> it's quite painful uh, to read through. But again, it shows how, how these kinds of works are collaborative. One person cannot do it. Three persons cannot do it. It's an effort of the community. So before, oh yeah, so these are the uh, people who work together, yeah. So a few points in which we can relate with Nehemiah. We may feel like we are small in front of the world. Like, uh, again, that is why I think I was very intentional about showing how grand Susa was and how, uh, how small Jerusalem was in comparison. And in that sense, we may relate with Jerusalem. We're confronted with challenges from all sides, we seem to be in a crumbling state, uh, managing one day at a time, one week at a time. But when we join in what God is doing through the church and in our lives, we can be sure that God is working hard with us. So that's the first, uh, the first point we can remember from this story. The second point is that maybe we are faced with challenges from within, like our entangled lives, our busy lives, our schedules, our activities. Um, and in all of this, challenges that we face, there's an encouragement and a slight, um, can I say correction, a slight, uh, slight push and telling us to strengthen our hands for the good work, uh, to strengthen our hands for the good work, just like the people did, uh, even when we are faced with challenges from within, from within our own perspectives. The, the third point may being that sometimes we may need to be calculated and disciplined like Nehemiah. But the last point is, no work is insignificant. God is the guy who reads all the credits. He acknowledges our efforts, every detail and every work that we do, every name that, uh, that of every person who puts their effort. Uh, no work is insignificant in this work. This is a work in which everyone comes together and works together. So, um, so as we see from the story of Nehemiah, um, in which God 
Nehemiah and the community work together. I, um, I, I want, obviously, uh, as a way of practical reflection for us to think about ourselves as well in our secular, uh, in our work, workspaces, but also as a church in this space, how might we be working together uh, to build a place of worship, a place where people can meet God and encounter forgiveness and encounter repentance and truth and love and all of that. So with that word, I just want to close with a word of prayer and, um, and may, may these words continue to linger in our hearts and move us to continue reflecting throughout the week as well. Uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to the good work that you have begun in this world. We ask that you will give us the courage to do what we need to do and give us the clarity to, uh, to prioritize and um, to know which aspect of our life uh, is where you're working and to be courageous to join in that. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah and the community. Help us to be brave and help us to put our, strengthen our hands together to work together for your glory and for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.